Father God, we thank you for the beauty of this incredible day, for the privilege of being here, for the privilege of being with friends and family, and God, just for the honor of worshiping a holy God, a God who created the universe, who holds it all in the palm of his hands, a God who is perfect, a God who is fire, and yet a God who is love. A God who is omnipotent and yet who is gracious. A God who is omnipresent and yet lives in our hearts. A God who is holy, but a God who is love. We thank you for that fact. And we pray, God, that as we spend time in your word now, that your spirit will speak to us so fully that we'll leave today even more trusting your faithfulness and even more willing to share it with the world. I pray for me and us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, great to see you. Great to be here and to be here with you as well. Janice back in Dallas. Her mom has some uh, medical tests tomorrow that we're going in for and trusting all of that to be well. So she's over there. I can do this and she can do that. We couldn't trade places. She can do this, but I can't do that. You know, uh, she's much better at pretty much everything that I am. And that's for sure one of the examples of that. So yesterday I was in Little Rock, Arkansas, thinking about Dennis and Paula, you know, back in the Holy Land, Arkansas, you know, Dennis, I mean, you know. You have to speak show. I understood you have to speak slower over there. You have to use smaller words, things like that. So anyhow, I was speaking. <laughs> that's terrible. Dennis comes to chapel and gets grief. That's just not fair. So anyhow, I was speaking at this event, 1,400 uh, college students from all over Arkansas that were gathered there in Little Rock. I have discovered that college students are getting younger. Have you noticed this? They must be letting them in in the first grade, right? I mean, I'm not getting older. They're getting younger. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So anyway, yesterday I was in uh, Little Rock, actually in the hotel room, getting ready to talk to this group that morning. And I was praying and kind of going over things in my mind. And something, an insight came to me that I had never thought about before. And it so stopped me in my tracks that I wound up changing my uh, message yesterday in light of it and then started over with the sermon for today. And gracious, she reloaded the whole PowerPoint, did all of that stuff. Thank you very much in light of all of that. And it's a bigger deal than it sounds when I say it, I think. But what occurred to me yesterday was the coronavirus epidemic is a greater, on some level, more significant challenge than we have faced in my lifetime. And I'll explain that in a second. I don't mean that to sound as frightening as it sounds. I don't mean it quite on that level, actually. I'll unpack it in just a second. But like, let's say it this way, a more unique challenge than we have faced in my lifetime. But it is also, therefore, a more unique opportunity for the gospel than we have faced in my lifetime. And that's what I want to talk about today. We're going to talk about that just a bit, then we're going to move it over to Mark chapter 1. As you know, this season we're walking, watching Jesus change lives as we're getting from Christmas to Easter. And we're going to come today to the shortest miracle story in all the Gospels, but one of the most powerful as well. And as one of our tour guides says, when we go to Israel and we talk about this, perhaps the most Christian thing Jesus ever did. And we'll explain that in just, it sounds weird, doesn't it, in just a minute as well. But let's do a little context first, if we could. So you're obviously following this in the news. The coronavirus is so named because of the corona or crown-shaped spikes that are on the external of the virus itself. It's more technically called COVID-19 for coronavirus um, uh, disease is the idea behind COVID-19. As of this morning, 87,000 people in 63 countries have been infected. And as I checked just before leaving a second ago, the death toll right now is 2,900 and 
77. Well, here's what makes it so unique. Uh, it's really on three levels. One level has to do with the financial side of this. Uh, as I'm sure you know, unless you've been living in Mars, uh, the stock market last week had its worst one-week decline since 2008. $3.6 trillion lost to the market over this past week. All right? Now, there are lots of theories as to what's going to happen next. On the more positive side, I saw an article yesterday suggesting that this is the buying opportunity of our lifetime because the markets are going to come back quickly and they're going to come back more strongly and you're buying at garage sales what you normally be buying at retail in essence. And so there's one side that says this is really good news if you're in the market for any length of time because you can buy so much more cheaply. The other side of that extreme says, well, actually, this is the beginning of what will be a global recession and there are places all in the middle of all of that. But at the very least, what we're discovering from this is that our economic might as the wealthiest nation on earth is susceptible to this tiny virus, right? And some of the possibilities of what happened in China happens here are really pretty remarkable. 800,000 students in Hong Kong are studying at home the next two months. Schools closed in Hong Kong the next two months. Imagine that in the States. Imagine closing all the schools in the United States for two months. Imagine that world. Imagine a world of quarantine such as they've done with 20 million people in China. Imagine that in the United States. Imagine the significance for retail. Imagine the significance for travel. The airline industry says it's already lost a billion dollars in travel because of this. I mean, you could envision a scenario where we won't be having chapel in a month, where we won't be in public. We won't want to be around other people in public. Yesterday in the airport coming back, I saw my first traveler who's responding to the coronavirus. He had a mask on and had a goggles thing as well, because you can be infected through your eyes. Neither of those, they tell us, is effective, by the way. The only reason to wear a mask is if you're already infected in order not to spread the infection. But the, unless you're going to get the clinical mask that doctors wear, nothing that's available to you and me will actually keep you from getting the virus. So you see people wearing these masks, and actually what they're doing is keeping people that need them from getting them. And so the advice is not to rush out and get masks just to wear around, like this one traveler was doing. But you think about the consequences financially on the other side of this, and it could be, could be, really, maybe they won't be, but they could be really significant. There's a second piece to this, obviously, and that is the medical and the health, and the fact that our medical and scientific resources are insufficient so far, although we are the most advanced technologically literate society ever. According to one Harvard epidemiologist, now this is scary, 40 to 70 percent of the global population will get the coronavirus. That's what he says. 40 to 70 percent of the population will get the coronavirus, he thinks. Now, the other side of that, there's another theory out there that says this is like the flu and it will burn out by the summer that it's going to be a seasonal thing, and that it's not going to be anything like what the Harvard epidemiologist says. And there are options in the middle there as well. There are all sorts of different ways of calculating mortality rates. Right now it's around 2%, but on the other side of that, 52% of Chinese men smoke. And smoking significantly compromises your lungs, and this is a lung disease. And so perhaps the mortality rates, which are almost entirely in China, are skewed up because of the smoking that happens in China, but doesn't happen elsewhere, and with better technology in the West, and so perhaps the mortality rates will go down significantly. We just don't know. What we do know is that so far we have no vaccine, so far we have no antidote. They're working on it, of course. 
hard as I can, but it just takes time. It takes months, if not years, to develop these things. And what we do know to this point, my point is, that with all of our remarkable technological advances, they are so far insufficient to this. A third point to make is that political structure is irrelevant to this. You've seen the epidemic begin in communist China. Right now, there's an epidemic in Islamically-led Iran. We're seeing this in, India, in Italy. We're seeing it in India. We're seeing it in all kinds of geographies and all kinds of governments. And the virus doesn't care whether you're a democracy or you're a communist system or whatever you are. It doesn't care about all of that. And so here's all of that to make this point. Right now you're thinking, man, I'm glad I came to chapel today. This is, this is uplifting. I'm encouraged. So glad I got out of bed today. I wish I'd stayed home and watched the news. Well, wouldn't watch the news, but nonetheless, right? Here's the point I'm trying to make. The point isn't to be scary about all this. We don't know yet. The point is, this is a unique threefold combination in my lifetime. We haven't seen anything that does all three of these things until now. When you think of disasters like Katrina, they've been localized. They obviously horrifically affected New Orleans, but they didn't affect China, except in some ancillary economic way, I suppose. They didn't affect you unless you were living in New Orleans at the time, or you had family members that lived there directly, right? Diseases like Ebola have been localized to this point anyway in their spread. You think even of the Great Recession, and it affected some nations more than others, and it didn't affect our health, well, depression rates, things like that, but it wasn't a threat on a medical level. It wasn't a medical issue, right? You even think about 9-11, as horrific as that was and remains, but that wasn't a medical issue. And that affected, obviously, New York City first and then the United States, and it affected Indonesia much less. Not since 1918 and the Spanish flu pandemic have we seen something that has the potential to affect the entire world economically and medically without regard to political process. This is new in our lifetime. And now I'm getting to the good news. You're thinking, well, I'm, you said there was good news here someplace. What we're learning and what I think we're going to learn is that our self-sufficiencies built on our financial means, built on our technological prowess, built on our trust in our governmental systems are not nearly as adequate as we thought they were. And they never were. The coronavirus doesn't change one iota about the mortality of man, right? Mortality rate's not going up here. It's not like people were going to live forever before this. It's just we're in touch now with our need for God on a level maybe we weren't a week ago. And the opportunity for Christians to demonstrate faith and courage and compassion in the face of whatever this becomes, is unique. Our opportunity both to trust God rather than self, rather than finances or medical means or governmental structures, our ability to trust God and our ability to invite others to trust God is unique at this point in time. And that's one of the ways God redeems all that He allows. So let's see how that works, and then we'll drive this into the Lord's Supper, and we'll be done. So in Mark chapter 1, 
we find this verse. Here we go, verse 29. Immediately Jesus left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So in Mark chapter 1, Jesus is in Capernaum. This is his fishing village on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. It became his home base for his ministry across the three years of his public ministry. He lived at the home of Peter and Andrew. He moved in with them, and their home became his home, as it were, and we'll see that in just a second. So he has earlier in Mark chapter 1 been teaching at the synagogue. It's their Shabbat or Sabbath. It'd be Saturday, but it's like Sunday, okay? And by the way, their synagogue's about the size of this chapel. I just now thought of that, but at least in visual terms. I haven't done the measurements, but in visual terms, it'd be pretty similar to the size of this. This is what it looks like today. Now, what you're seeing there in the white stone is a fourth century synagogue. want to be clear about that. But it's built on the first century foundation. See that foundation in black, basalt stone? That's the first century foundation. That's Jesus' home church. That's where Jesus went to church. That was Jesus' chapel, as it were. This is what it looked like in Jesus' day. The fact that it's such a magnificent structure, it's the largest synagogue yet discovered in Galilee in a small town. Capernaum never had more than 5,000 people. Shows the wealth of Capernaum. I've said this before, but if you think of the, of the disciples as ragtag peasants, you've got them wrong. They were wealthy, established, successful business people, and this town of Capernaum was the wealthiest city in the northern Galilee, and that's where Jesus chose to base his ministry, at the home of the largest, it's in the largest house yet discovered in Capernaum, and the one closest to the lake. And so here's what it looks like today. That structure you see up there is a Catholic church built in 1990 over the remains. What's in front of you are other houses in Capernaum. And what's underneath that is where Peter's house originally was. But this is what it looked like in Jesus' day. Now, what you're seeing on the other side there that look like houses are actually fishing piers. They had enclosed fishing piers, U-shaped fishing piers. They had 16 of these structures around the Sea of Galilee. Fishing was such a lucrative business in the first century. It was the primary means of getting protein. You could dry it. You could salt it. You could ship it all over Israel. They had the account of the high priest's office. Uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John did. They had a fishing consortium. They had a fleet of boats. They had servants. This was a massive corporation for the day. And what you're seeing over there are actually uh, fishing piers. But right in front of you, see if I can get this to work, right in front of you, right there is Peter's house itself. And to give you a sense of what it looked like, it actually was three houses with a courtyard in the middle. And one of the homes was for Peter and his family. The second was for his mother-in-law. We'll see her in a second. And the third is where Jesus lived for three years. And so we've had church. We've been to chapel, we would say. Uh, Jesus has taught that day. He's cast a demon out of a man during the worship service. That woke everybody up, as you could imagine. And then after church, as it were, they go home for lunch. Is how we would say it. It's like going back to your house for lunch uh, after, after church. And they've invited their business partners, James and John, to go with them. All right? There's a problem. Peter's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. She was supposed to be making lunch. And they get there, and she's ill with a fever. Now, just that one phrase tells us a lot about what's going on here. The fact that they didn't expect this till they got there tells us it came on suddenly. They didn't come to home after Shabbat, expecting her to make a meal when they already knew she was sick. That'd be pretty cruel, wouldn't it? And so they come home and they find her ill with it struck that quickly. Luke's version of this gives us medical language. Luke's a doctor, and in his version of the story, he tells us it was a great fever. They had two kind of fevers in the day. They had lesser fevers as they were known that they could treat medically, and that would go away over time. Then they had what they call great fevers for which they had no medical means, no medical response. These fevers were often thought to be the judgment of God. Now, we'll come to that again in just a second. 
and Peter's mother-in-law is found to be in bed with a great fever. Immediately they told Jesus about her. And he came and took her by the hand. The Greek says he stood over her and picked her up by the hand. That'll be important in a second. Grabbed her, as it were, helps her up. And in that instant, the fever left her and she began to serve them. In that instant, that's how we know this is a miracle. You can pray for somebody to get well, and a few weeks later they get well, and you're not sure, did God answer my prayer? Or was it medicine, or was it just their natural body, or whatever? This is instant, immediate. This mega fever that they couldn't treat medically left her, and she gets up, and she begins to serve them lunch. And the fact that Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law is what my friend says was the most Christian thing he ever did, which is not nice. Mike Fanning, remember Mike Fanning, you know, it's not kind at all. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have told you that, should I? You're going to remember that. You're going to, I shouldn't, just delete that, all right? The jury will disregard that remark, all right, as they say on TV, all right? Yeah, it's too late. Yeah, can't unring a bell, as they say. It's just a little too late. All right, so from this, moving right along, what do we learn? And how does this relate to the coronavirus and to the larger conversation? Let me suggest these things real quickly. First of all, obviously, Anyone can get sick. Now, not so obvious in their day. In their day, sickness was the judgment of God. That was the wrong theology they had. Here's Peter's mother-in-law. Here's Peter, the leader of the disciples. Here's his own family member. If anybody would be immune, you would think it would be the family of the lead disciple of the Son of God. But, he gets, but she gets sick. The fact that she gets up instantly and begins to serve them shows you her heart. It's not her fault. Now, Jesus doesn't ask her to repent of anything. This can happen to anybody. The coronavirus can happen to anybody, so it can happen to everybody. But if it's not that, it's something. And it's just human nature to tend to blame people for their suffering. And we do that in part so we can think, well, I wouldn't do what they did, so I wouldn't get what they got. Subconsciously, more than consciously. We try to find something that we can blame it on because then if we don't do what they did, maybe we won't get what they got. Does that make sense? Just human nature. When you see people get sick, whether it's the virus or anything else, think of Peter's mother-in-law. All right? Happened to anybody. Second thing quickly to say, obviously we need to pray for the sick. Not so obvious in the day. This mega fever would have in the day been understood as the judgment of God. Why pray about that? God's judged this person. But they immediately told Jesus. They immediately told God. Now, the reason to pray for people, whether it's a virus or anything else, actually three reasons. It's not to tell God what he doesn't know. It's not like they told Jesus and Jesus said, hark, I had no idea. It's not like when you pray about your problems, you're telling God something he doesn't know. What you're doing is you're positioning yourself to receive what he wants to give. I can't give Brian the remote if he won't take it. There are things God can't give us if we won't receive them. You're also positioning yourself to be part of the answer. Not in this case. They weren't used to help heal the mother-in-law. But quite often in Scripture, when you pray about something, God then uses you to answer the prayer. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray for the lost. Then in Matthew chapter 10, He sends them out to the lost. When you pray, you're volunteering to be part of the answer. And when you pray, you're positioning yourself to see God at work and to glorify Him. If God does it but you didn't ask, maybe you don't know God did it. But when you ask, you see God respond. If the disciples hadn't been around and Jesus had just gone up and healed her and they didn't know it, then it would be perhaps less likely for them to credit God. 
So when you see people get sick, pray for them. And I don't just mean people you know. Have you been praying for the people in China? Have you been praying for God to use the outbreak in Iran to turn Muslims to Christ? Have you been praying for secularists in Italy? Have you been praying for the cases so far that have been announced in the United States? Pray for those that, not just the coronavirus, when we pray, we position ourselves to receive God's best. Third principle, quickly, Jesus cares for every hurting person. You know that, but they didn't know that. They would have thought because of her illness, the last thing Jesus would do would be to touch her because he'd be contaminated spiritually. He couldn't go to the synagogue. Instead, he hovers over her and he reaches down and he grabs her and he hugs her and she, he hauls her up onto her feet and instantly she is healed. That's the way Jesus feels about every hurting person. And he wants us to feel the same way. Now, this wasn't her fault. Sometimes our suffering is our fault, but Jesus loves us anyway. Jesus wants you to love people dying from lung cancer as a result of smoking just as much as he wants you to love and pray for people that are dying of a disease they had nothing to contribute to. He wants us to feel like Jesus does. And then last, when he serves us, he wants us to serve others. When he healed Peter's mother-in-law, she immediately began to serve him. You may not, I hope you don't. Gosh, I hope you never get the mortality rate's not that severe, but nonetheless, I hope you never have to deal with the coronavirus. But if it's not that, it's something else. What has God most recently done in your life? What sin has He forgiven? What prayer has He answered? What gift has He given? They say grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. What grace and mercy has He given you? Well, now you're Peter's mother-in-law. And how he wants you to serve others as he served you. And he wants us to have that attitude as this virus goes forward. He wants us to be his hands and feet. He wants us to be the body of Christ. He wants us to be those people showing others the compassion that we have received. He wants us to pay forward what he has paid to us. So you're someplace in the story, actually all three places. There's some place in your life today where you're the mother-in-law and you need his help. Pray today. Keep praying. You're the disciples, you're Peter, and it's your mother-in-law that's ill. Keep praying. You see someone who's sick, be the hands of Christ. You've been served, serve others. That short story, the shortest miracle story in the Gospels, one of the most powerful, invites us now to make the story ours. And we do so out of gratitude for grace. And so we'll close the service as we do the first Sunday each month by sharing together the Supper of our Lord out of gratitude for such grace.